The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center's lecture podcast series are given live to an audience of soldiers and the public and provide insight into leadership and warfighting from scholars and soldiers, helping us tell the Army's story one soldier at a time. Our lectures often include important visuals. To view video of this lecture and many others, please visit the USAHEC channel on YouTube. The opinions and statements of the speakers featured on this podcast are not necessarily the views of the United States Army or the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center. Ladies and gentlemen, today is November 28, 2018, and on behalf of the director and staff of the U.S. Army, War, uh, the US Army Heritage and Education Center and the U.S. Army War College, welcome to the Dr. Brooks E. Kleber Memorial Lecture Series. Uh, normally, to, this is when I'd tell you that we have books on sale behind the room. Uh, however, we sold out within about the first five minutes of uh, opening the doors. So uh, not, if you do have one of, uh, of Mr. Bowden's books with you tonight, we will have a book signing. Uh, however, we do have a fresh shipment of the Hue books coming in uh, next week. Uh, so Dr. Or, I'm sorry, Mr. Bowden will be signing book plates tonight uh, if you stand in line for that. Uh, so again, all proceeds from book sales uh, do go uh, to the Army Heritage Center Foundation uh, for the, all of their efforts that they, uh, that they make to support the USAHEC. So tonight's lecture honors the memory of Dr. Brooks E. Kleber, former Deputy Chief Historian of the Office of the Chief of Military History, and I'd like to take just a few moments of your time to tell you about a little about how Dr. Kleber uh, and the legacy uh, we're here to remember tonight. Uh, Brooks Kleber was a native of Trenton, New Jersey, but graduated from Dickinson College right here in Carlisle in 1940. He entered the Army in August 1941, went to officer candidate school, and was assigned to the 90th Infantry Division. He and his unit arrived in Normandy on D-Day plus five, and he earned the Bronze Star for gallantry in action. He was captured by the Germans on June 26, 1944, and remained a guest of the German Army until the end of the war. In early 1945, as the Allies closed in, the German Army began moving the POWs from the more vulnerable camps. Brooks Kleber was ordered to make one of these moves, and when he went, he took with him two books in addition to his personal effects. The first one was A History of Colonial America, and the second was The Common People, 1746 to 1938. It says a great deal about the men that he treasured those books enough to carry them with him throughout the remainder of the war until he was liberated by American troops in 1945. After being honorably discharged from the Army in 1945 and returning to civilian life, he entered the University of Pennsylvania where he completed his master's and his doctorate. While pursuing his doctorate, he was hired in 1950 as the historian of the U.S. Army Chemical Corps. In 1963, when the Chemical Corps was dissolved, he became the chief historian for the Continental Army Command at Fort Story, Virginia. In 1973, he became the chief historian for the U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command at Fort Story. In 1980, he was appointed the deputy chief historian of the U.S. Army, where he remained until his retirement in 1987. Dr. Kleber was active in the U.S. Army Reserve from his discharge in 1945 until his retirement in 1987, attaining the rank of colonel. Near the end of his career, Dr. Kleber presented those two books that he carried as a POW in Europe to the U.S. Army Military History Institute, and we are pleased and humbled to preserve both of them and the story of the sacrifice they represent. Those books are on display in, this, in a special case in our research room if you ever have a chance to come down and visit those. So tonight we honor Brooks Kleber's memory by presenting the next in our series of his lectures. So, tonight, as you can tell, we have a special program rather than our normal lecture. Uh, we'll have a discussion between our moderator and tonight's speaker. After they conclude the discussion, we'll open the floor to questions uh, and answers. And now I'm honored to present to you our moderator for the evening, Dr. Conrad Crane. Dr. Crane is the USAHEC's Chief of Historical Services and previously served as the Director of the Military History Institute from 2003 to 2013. Dr. Crane earned his bachelor's degree from the United States Military Academy and his master's degree and doctoral degree in history from Stanford University. Dr. Crane has published extensively on topics ranging from the American Civil War uh, all the way to conflicts, the conflicts in Vietnam and Iraq. Our speaker tonight is Mr. Mark Bowden. Mr. Bowden is an author, a journalist, a screenwriter, and a teacher. 
He earned his bachelor's degree in English literature from Loyola College in Maryland and is currently an Atlantic Monthly national correspondent. Mr. Bowden regularly contributes to major American publications and is, of course, the author of the bestseller Black Hawk Down, a story of modern war, and also Killing Pablo, the hunt for the world's greatest outlaw. Tonight, he will be talking about his latest book, Hue 1968, The Turning Point of the American War in Vietnam. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome Mr. Or Dr. Crane and Mr. Bowden. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Carl. And I'll start off. This, this should be a fascinating evening tonight. There's two things I want to talk about and try to get Mark to elucidate upon. Not just the, this, this, this book, this fine book he's just written, but also the whole process about how it got created. And so we're going to talk about how you create works like this and also about the content. I'll start out with the harshest criticism I have about the book. It does not have a bibliography or an index. For historians, that's particularly tragic because that means it's very hard for us to steal things to get in there to, to pull things out. Uh, but as, as I read it, once I got over the, the hump of that particular problem, uh, as I read it, I, it really struck me how relevant it is today to the issues the Army is facing. The current Chief of Staff of the Army, Mark Milley, has been very, uh, very open that, that he wants the Army to start looking again at fighting in cities. Uh, you know, he talked about fighting in megacities, talked about going to combat in cities, sees that as a future environment for us as we re-engage in major combat operations. And there's a lot in, this, in, in Mark's book that could be a cautionary tale about that. And I want to try to get in with our discussion today about some of the particular difficulties of fighting in cities as personified in the, in the horrific combatant way. First question for Mark is, why this book? What really attracted you to this? But all the things you've written about Pablo and <coughs> guests of the Ayatollah and, and Mogadishu, why way? Well, um, I, first of all, let me say that you were too eager a reader, Conrad, because only the first edition lacked a bibliography and an index. Uh, my publisher was eager to get the book in print, so the first edition went out without that. But uh, all subsequent editions have. Good, then I, have no I can't criticize it. Then. <coughs> so you now can steal away. And Good, thank you. I appreciate and that. It. Um, to be honest, I, I think you know, my publisher, Morgan Entrican, who's a dear friend, uh, had been after me to write this book for a long time. And I think his logic went something along the lines of Mark wrote a book about a battle, I sold 5 million copies. Let's see if we can get Mark to write another book about a battle. And that, for me, was not a terribly compelling um, uh, suggestion. But he kept after me, and um, I started to look into, uh, one of the first things I do is look and see what's out there. And in terms of what was available for popular consumption, um, people who buy books who don't read the official Marine Corps history and things like that, um, there were a couple books that had been done but they had been done um, fairly hastily and really only from an American vantage point and were typical of a lot of um, poorly done, I think, military books in that they are sort of like cheerleading uh, American forces and not a critical look at what actually happened. So the first thing that occurred to me was that this hadn't really been done. And I think another thing that really struck me was how significant uh, and, and enormous uh, this battle was. Um, it was just a wrenching experience for 100, 200,000 people, lives lost, uh, people wounded, certainly the largest single combat episode in the Vietnam War. And I was, other than knowing that this had been part of the Tet Offensive, I think I was surprised uh, at what a significant event in particular this was. And I, I felt if I wasn't aware of that, then most people probably were not. Uh, so it was an amazing story. It hadn't been done. And lastly, you know, I was 16 years old when this battle happened. I was a sophomore in high school. And those of us who are old enough, um, even those of us who never served in the military or never went to Vietnam, our lives were profoundly influenced by this war. 
And I remember it in particular as being the first time in my life that I was really at odds with my father, who was a World War II veteran, a big supporter of the war in Vietnam. And I, of course, being a smart-ass 16-year-old, was against the war. And we would argue about this intensely. Uh, and my dad uh, would always challenge my uh, arguments by saying, how do you know that? Or where did you see that? And at age 16, it actually sent me on what turned out to be one of the more, one of the first serious research projects of my life, where I would begin reading books about the history of Vietnam, about what was going on in Vietnam. I remember I subscribed to Time Magazine when I was a sophomore in high school so that I could read more about what was going on. The idea being to uh, try to win these arguments with my dad. So it had a personal connection to me, and I thought, here I am, I'm 67 now, I was probably 62, 63. When I started working on this, I have a lifetime of experience researching and reporting. Uh, why not use some of these uh, skills to go back to this original research project and do my own work and arrive at my own understanding of, if not the whole war in Vietnam, at least this one very significant episode. So those were all the reasons that, that went into it. And for those of you that read the book, it really struck me that it, 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 it ties together five different sets of stories. And we're going to talk about how that, how that was done. He, it talks about uh, the North Vietnamese and VC, talks about the Marines fighting in way, talks about the Army forces coming in from the West, talks about, to some extent, that hard, and we'll talk about the hardest story to tell is the Arvin story, which is difficult for anybody to tell. But it also has a great story. I was particularly struck by the coverage of journalists, interviewing other journalists about this swarm of journalists that come to way and how they're trying to present the story as well. Right. So I want to get to all those particular groups of stories. We'll start with the Vietnamese, which I was really struck with how much you got from the other side. Mm. How did you get those stories? Well, and in fact, that was another reason why doing this project appealed to me, because when I started working on this story, uh, it was really the first time that American journalists or historians could freely work in Vietnam. There's been such a thaw in relationships between Vietnam and the United States that I could go to Vietnam, um, do my reporting there, and, and try to arrive again at my own understanding of uh, how this episode was viewed through the eyes of um, all the Vietnamese who were involved, from you know the Arvin soldiers to the Viet Cong to the North Vietnamese regulars to the civilians uh, who were trapped in the city during this horrific month. Um, and you know how you do that is you find people who live there, who speak the language, who are willing to help. In my case, it was a fellow named Ho Dang Hua, who I uh, learned of through a conversation I had with a Dartmouth professor who does a lot of work in Southeast Asia. He had, unbeknownst to me when I first contacted him, just finished working with Ken Burns and Lynn Novick on their uh, series about the Vietnam War. He was their point of contact for reporting in Vietnam. So when I told Hua, who speaks fluent English, who's a retired military officer, much too young to have fought in what they call the American War, but who was very knowledgeable about the Vietnamese military, military veterans organizations, about the government in Hanoi. Uh, he was able to find the kind of people that I wanted to interview and to go into the archives, the military archives in Hanoi, and find and translate for me um, material that became invaluable to me in writing the story. I would have no interest um, <clears throat> in writing a story about a battle from only one vantage point. To me, the essence of the drama of, of combat is the clash of two peoples. And who were these people? Why were they fighting each other? Uh, beyond simply the tactics and strategy employed, but who were they and what motivated them? Um, and so those were all... Um, uh, you know, big, big motivations. Anyway, I, want, I want to add here before I, I go any further. Uh, within the story, within this book the, about the Battle of Hue, there's a love story. And it's a wonderful story of um, Jim Bullington, who was a young uh, foreign service officer, um, and Tui Kam, who was a Vietnamese woman working at the American consulate in Da Nang. 
and they were engaged and were separated when the city was taken over by the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese and went through a, a terrific ordeal in hiding uh, only to discover or find one another again when the battle was over. And, and tonight, uh, their daughter, Ava, is, is here. Um, you know, I, I, one of the good things that came out of, <laughs> of the Battle of Hue was that Jim, Jim Bullington found uh, Tui Kong at the end and they married and have had a family. And so we're honored to have Ava and her husband, Jeremy, who's studying here at the War College here tonight. <laughs> that was only one of many moving stories from the Vietnamese side. Well, I just like to say this because I don't make these things up, you know. <laughs> we would hope not. We would hope not. <laughs> what What other stories? You know, there are so many in there about the young North Vietnamese women coming into Hawaii to run the run the, the sapper cells and the, Chê Mung, yeah. And the uh, and even the the the, 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 the hardest the Arvin story is very hard to tell. And even some of those stories, General Truong and his people, which yeah. which are they actually hold one piece of the citadel. The the, the North yeah. Vietnamese and the BC don't conquer the whole citadel. There is a Vietnamese General Truong and his yeah. forces actually do hold one corner of the citadel throughout the whole battle and the great hardships. It's one of the things about the book that I'm disappointed in is, is how hard it was to track down um, <clears throat> veterans of the South Vietnamese Army. Uh, they've dispersed all over the world. Even those, and I did find some living in the United States, are um, nervous about talking about their service and about the war because they have family members who were in Vietnam. Vietnam remains <clears throat> a one-party authoritarian state where uh, the government is, has the power to make life miserable for people and does. Uh, so it was very difficult to get that side of the story. I would like to have had more. But, you, but I, talking about that, you did get some of the North Vietnamese veterans, VC veterans, to express some remorse over some of the actions that happened. Yeah, uh, you know, and I was struck too by you know, the fact that this is, a, uh, again, an authoritarian state where um, speaking out against uh, even uh, events that happened half a century ago uh, are very uh, problematic. And, and also, you know, the people I'm interviewing are heroes of the revolution. Uh, they are, you know, all of, most of the people I interviewed have their decorations and their portrait, you know, posing as a young Viet Cong soldier or North Vietnamese soldier. They're very, very proud of their service and they're very um, revered in their own country. And for them to be candid about the things that uh, troubled them. During the occupation of the city of Hue, the communist forces um, undertook to purge uh, civilians who worked for the South Vietnamese government, including Ava's mother, Thuy Cong. Uh, many of these people were put on trial, summarily executed, or marched off into the uh, uh, mountains for re-education, never to be seen again. Mass graves were discovered after the uh, city was taken back. So this was an episode that is very troubling to the current government in Vietnam. It's a shameful episode. That it, I found it really interesting that in Vietnam, uh, they like to view and portray the American war as strictly a war for independence, that it was a war against invading Americans to throw them out. In fact, as we know, it was a civil war. Half, or roughly half of the population of Vietnam was fighting on one side, and they'd like to kind of soft pedal that aspect of it. And the fact that the communist forces sought out and executed all these people uh, when they took over the city of Hue remains a scandal and an embarrassment, something that the Vietnamese government officially has never acknowledged. So I thought it was extraordinary that some of the veterans that I talked to spoke of their experience. Uh, some of them, at the time, only 19 or 20 years old, thrust into the position of carrying out um, policies that they found troubling and abhorrent, and which they remain ashamed of to this time. So the world is really complicated. Uh, but it was, you know, for me, um, very impressive that these people were willing to talk openly about what they had done and what they experienced. And, and another particularly strong set of interviews is, is the Marine interviews. 
and it was, it, I was uh, taught, at, one of my colleagues at West Point was a colonel named Ken Hamburger, who was actually a helicopter pilot with the 1st, 3rd Brigade of the 101st coming in from the west in the battles to try to keep the, break down the, the pathways into way. Right. And he actually, I remember he gave us an OPD, uh, an officer professional development session one time where he had pictures of the battle from this helicopter that he'd taken, and he was very critical of the Marines' use of firepower in way. He contrasted that with some of the Army areas and some other parts of way, and 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 and, and I, I, I just I I infer from the book that at, at least as many uh, civilians in way were killed by firepower than they than were in the communist purges. Would that be? Oh yeah, I would say by far. Um, the, in fact, if you interview people as I did in Wei who survived that month of fighting uh, and ask them what was the most terrible thing, it was the shelling uh, from the United States and the bombing, which began happening, um, if not just the crossfire, but the serious shelling began happening toward the end of the battle. Um, initially, there were concerns over destroying um, historic buildings. Hue is the ancient capital of Vietnam. I think this was before um, both American and South Vietnamese forces realized how dire the situation was, and it was only after many Marines were killed and the body bags started piling up at Fubai that all the restrictions on bombing and the problem were lifted. But the problem with Hue for civilians, particularly in the northern part of the city, is that the city is an enormous fortress, the citadel. It looks like something out of the Game of Thrones. And there are like nine gates in and out of this fortress with 30 foot high stone walls, 30 feet wide, and roughly 60, 70,000 people who lived inside that uh, citadel who had no way out. Because when, they, when the communist forces invaded, civilians who wanted nothing to do with the, the revolution tried to flee, but they couldn't because if they did, they were marked as um, collaborators. And so they pretty much had to sort of sit out the occupation. And then when the Americans began to take the city back and the bombing and shelling started, particularly within the Citadel, people had nowhere to go. And so they dug bunkers underneath of their homes and many, many people were killed when bombs or shells struck their house and buried them, either blew them up or buried them alive. So it was, as is true of many episodes of combat, throughout history, civilians were the ones who bore the brunt of the horror. Yeah, it struck me because you write about, it, we're talking naval gunfire into way from naval ships offshore, napalm, dropping napalm throughout, napalm, the, city, yeah. throughout the city. And it was, you know, it was tough at first because the, if you've ever been to Vietnam, in the month of February is the rainy season and it's very humid and overcast and drizzly all the time. So the uh, uh, ceiling for aircraft was about roof height. And so the ordinary um, uh, sorties that could be flown were impossible. And, the, and also because of the, how close in the fighting was, it was very difficult to uh, shell or bomb without killing your own forces. So much of the battle was fought uh, with small arms, um, you know, basically by forces sometimes just across the street from one another. Well, you also mentioned that the Marines were the, the hundred using the recoilless rifles and the, the Oncos, and I mean, they were basically blowing buildings down. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, one of the great stories of Huey is, is uh, Ernie Cheatham, Colonel Ernie Cheatham, who uh, was demanded to be sent into Huey after two of his companies, he was a brigade commander, had been sort of piecemeal fed into this city and were, had encountered a force far greater than the, even their um, commanders realized, who were being repeatedly ordered to attack well-entrenched positions of enemy forces far superior to their own, who were losing men. And Cheatham, who was this wonderful character, he's the only um, um, American military officer who's in the Canton Hall of Fame. He was a football player for the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Baltimore Colts. He was a gigantic man. And uh, he was furious that his, two of his companies had been sent into Hue uh, without his command. So he showed up at Fubai and demanded to be sent into the city. And so the night before he arrived in Hue, 
uh, much to the delight of his uh, uh, young officers who were being chewed to pieces, um, he sought out Marine Corps manuals on how to assault fortified positions, um, knowing that his men were going to be fighting in a city, um, uh, knowing little else, you know, that they were facing an entrenched and, and difficult enemy. So he learned, you know, that the, for instance, the light anti-tank um, uh, weapons, the laws that most infantry carried in Vietnam, which fired a uh, rocket from a plastic tube, which were very useful if you're tromping around the rice paddies and the mountains because they aren't that heavy weight, were almost useless in Hue because the charge in the rocket that they fired would bounce off of stone walls, was insufficient to poke holes in walls. So he rounded up all the World War II Korean era bazookas he could find, recoilless rifles, he got as many of those as he could get his hands on. The Antos, which as you know is a vehicle with six recoilless rifles on it, essentially creating his own mobile artillery, you know, for his men in the city, and loaded up on tear gas. Uh, one of his uh, officers found uh, tear gas launchers, that, which would launch and create entire clouds of tear gas. So with the tactic of blowing holes in the wall of a building that you're going to assault and then pumping tear gas into it, he found that a lot fewer Marines were getting mowed down when they crossed the street into that building. So this is an example of a, a very smart uh, um, officer who was, I think, honest enough to understand what he didn't know and to set out to try and figure out what he needed to know to be successful. And he really, I think, of the American military commanders in the Battle of Way emerges as, I think, the most heroic and successful figure. How did you uh, find, again, a very rich collection of Marine interviews especially. How did you contact those people? How did you get find out where they were? How did you make those? Oh, these guys are easy to find. Uh, <laughs> you know, one of the things about Vietnam is that and they're probably, do we have Vietnam veterans here in the, well, you can yell at me if, you, if I'm wrong, but I think I'm, it's fair of me to say that if you served a year, 13 months in Vietnam, when your day came to come home, you were plucked out of wherever you were, put on a helicopter, and you flew home. And most 18, 19, 20-year-old guys are not real good at sort of recording the names and addresses of the parents of all the guys that they served with and everything else. So very often, and you would have this intense year-long or more experience fighting in Vietnam alongside all the other fellows in your unit, and you never saw those guys again. You came home, and that, that experience was almost like something that happened in a different world. Come the internet, you know, some 20 years later, all of these units now have websites, they have rosters, they have message boards, they convene reunions, they, you've probably seen groups of Vietnam veterans. The internet has really, I think, created a sense of community among uh, veterans who served in Vietnam. So for a reporter, it's like, you know, so easy. You just go to the, uh, you know, the Marine One Five website and there is a list of everybody who served in 67 and 67 and with their email addresses and phone numbers and that was easy. The Vietnam part was a little harder. Yeah. <laughs> and there weren't quite as many army interviews there, but I, I noticed you had some really interesting secondary sources, or not, I mean, other memoirs, army memoirs. Yeah. Actually, the, you know, the uh, army officers had done more writing about what had happened. Uh, there's a particularly good book by Charles Crone called The Lost Battalion about the uh, tragic experience of his brigade marching south, for, as you mentioned, from northwest of the city toward the citadel and running into what was in fact the command center for the entire Vietnamese effort against the battle and losing half of his uh, battalion uh, out in the fields and, and very dramatically leading them out through enemy lines in pitch darkness, uh, you know, managed to rescue like half of his men. Uh, it's an extraordinary story. So the army had a significant piece of this story uh, and I think, you know, they, I found they had done actually a better job of recording it. The uh, one thing, to get back to the Marine performance, it was, I, I, 
there were a lot of, act, a lot of uh, aspects of the marine performance in Way that were kind of disturbing. You, you talk a lot in there, you talk, there's the, they rob a bank in Way. You talk about gunning down civilians in the streets. There's the one young man who was very disturbed. Eventually, he sees a gang rape and murder. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you, know, it, it, you know, the general consensus is that, if you read the books on Vietnam, is that the, the morale and discipline of the force in Vietnam really starts to fall apart after Way. 69, 70, it gets very bad. For the Army, My Lai happens in March of 68, but, but that's the beginning of a, of a wave of problems that will come in. Right. But it seems to me that a lot of the signs that, the, that, there were, there, that there were major disciplinary cracks in the force seemed to appear in the streets of Way. Mm -hmm. Is that, I mean, it, it, does it, it, was it the urban fighting? Was it, I mean, it just, it just seems like a lot of what happened to Way brought out the worst of a lot of the soldiers were there. And they told you some pretty graphic stories. Is it, I mean, what was your, your, your impression of the, of the, the, sol the soldiers there and the, and the pressure, the stresses they were under and the actions they took? Well, I think it's an unfortunate part of war. Um, and it's true to some extent whenever you send forces overseas to fight. Um, you know, you may have the absolute best of intentions and the most uh, honorable um, marching orders for your men. But if you have 100, 200, 300, 18, 19, 20-year-olds uh, with weapons uh, in a foreign country, um, not all of them are going to behave as you might wish they, they would. I think where this really came to a head in way was it was such an intense battle with so many Marines and enemy soldiers. For many Marines and, and, and Army veterans, it was the first time that they had actually seen the enemy that they were firing at. And here they were in very large numbers. Uh, so all of the, um, I think, tragic inevitabilities of that situation were aggravated. And, uh, you know, and I, I think that now I'm, I'm interviewing men who are in their late 60s and 70s who are remembering their experience when they were in their teens or early 20s. And, uh, you know, they're reflective. They are proud of many of the things that they did, but they're ashamed of some of the things that they did. Uh, I, I think it's a, a remarkable how candid so many were uh, talking about what they witnessed and what they did and, you know, why for some of them it's so troubling. They're, their service, uh, but I would say overall, the vast majority behave very honorably, uh, fought very bravely, uh, are very understandably proud of their service. Uh, but I think increasingly as time goes by, struck by the larger tragedy of the war, the losses of their friends, the seeming pointlessness of the whole enterprise. Obviously, here at the War College, we're, we're training colonels to be strategic leaders and assume senior positions in combat. Uh, let's just say that your portrayals of senior leadership away are not overly complimentary. Uh, right, but I would hasten to add that, that, that my understanding of, of the senior leadership is from the Marine officers who were 25, 26 years old at the time who, who retired from the Marine Corps as brigadier generals, uh, who are intensely, uh, passionately critical of the way that they were led and very uh, pointed and, uh, and, and uh, specific about the decision-making that went on. I think particularly galling to some of them was the um, uh, willingness of commanders in the rear in Fubai and in Saigon to ignore uh, information that was coming from the ground up. And, uh, you know, I think we all are acquainted with people in positions of power who like to ignore information that doesn't support what they believe is true. Uh, and, and that happens in all walks of life. Uh, but in, the, in a war, that gets people killed. And so the anger uh, over the way that uh, these young men were being deployed and the things that they were being ordered to do 
is still very strong. Mike Downs, for instance, who's a retired Marine general um, and just a fabulous guy, still carries with him everywhere he goes a little leather book in which he noted all of his, the men in his under his command who were wounded or killed on a, on a given day. That is just part of him. He takes it with him everywhere. And when I would ask him questions, he would just pull this little leather-bound book out, and he would say, well, on this day, you know, this is what happened. So that's how deeply felt, uh, you know, those experiences were and remain for these people. So I'm not a um, um, certainly knowledgeable enough personally to write a critique of um, the military command in Hue. Uh, but I respect the opinions of these men who were served, who served there, who spent their lives in the Marine Corps, and who have a very, um, I think, uh, well-grounded uh, set of opinions about the way they were used. I, I must say, reading your book, it, it just, it, it, I don't understand why General Yu didn't kind of figure out what was going on. It took him so long. I just don't understand why it took him so long. And, I, and it was shocking to me, too. I mean, I, I think, you know, uh, it, it's, it's fairly easy to criticize the American military command for being taken by surprise at Tet. Uh, it was an extraordinary um, failure, intelligence failure, without question. Uh, but give the enemy credit. I mean, these are smart people. Uh, they, uh, it, they're figuring out how uh, to fool you. You can be the most talented... Uh, a capable commander in the world and be completely fooled by an intelligent enemy. So I don't fault General Westmoreland, General Lahuey for being taken by surprise at Tet. Where I fault them is in the days after when the reality began to unfold. I found in General Westmoreland's archives at the University of Texas in Austin um, a CIA report written on the day, January 31st, 1968, the day that Huey was overrun. Extremely accurate accounting of exactly what had happened, estimating there were 10,000 or more enemy troops in the city, that basically the entire city was in the hands of the enemy, with two exceptions, a small American base in the south. It was right on, day one, completely ignored. I mean, they sent, they fed a company of 250 men up Route 1 into Hue, telling them to fight their way across the city to General Truong up in the northwest corner of the Citadel and you know, rescue his forces there, just completely ignoring their own intelligence. And then, beyond that, having their own men you know, radioing back the incredible resistance that they were finding, the impossibility of moving even a block without taking huge casualties, and yet being ordered to march nine blocks across the city later the same day to free the, you know, the, to, to, to help uh, force trying to guard a prison. I mean, and these are gung-ho young Marines, and they're realizing, if I follow this order, I'm going to get my men killed. I'm going to get most of my men killed. And they were losing men at a rapid rate. So it put them in a very, very difficult position. Uh, and that's why they were so thrilled when uh, Ernie Cheatham showed up. Because here was a, uh, a colonel, a uh, lieutenant colonel at the time, with this very, very strong personality. And he was a commander, but he was the kind of commander who could push up as well as push down. So he could tell General Huey, this is idiotic. I'm not sending my men you know, to do this. If we're going to do it, here's how we're going to do it. And they would listen to him. There was a wonderful review of this book uh, in the Wall Street Journal by Carl Marlantes, who wrote a terrific novel about Vietnam called Matterhorn, which if you've never read it, I recommend it strongly. But he was, he was a, a company commander Marine in Vietnam. And he wrote of his own experience after reading this book about how the men in the field were being ignored by their uh, superiors. And he wrote this episode where a friend of his was on a hilltop in the Central Highlands. And he radios back to his commander, sir, there's a line of enemy trucks moving up the hill toward my position. And he was told, well, that can't be so because the enemy doesn't have any trucks. To which this guy says, well, sir, you are where you are, and I am where I am, and where I am, I see goddamn trucks. <laughs> so apparently this was not an isolated episode. So the pronunciation is La Hue? For La Hue, Foster La Hue. 
Yeah, is, that's ironic. Or maybe Hugh. Yeah, isn't it? Isn't it? It's it ironic for, for way. Uh, talking about the enemy, let's talk about the, the press. On the, <laughs> uh, the, uh, I guess that's obviously the way they're perceived, but you, 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 you have this, your passages are terrific where you talk about the swarming of, of, the, of the journalists to wake. Can you talk about it a little bit, and what, how they're presenting the story, and how everybody's, what everybody's trying to do there? Sure. I mean, I'm a journalist, so, and I'm well aware of what an important role journalism played in the war in Vietnam. It was the last war, and I think the first, where American journalists basically could go wherever they wanted. If you showed up in uh, Saigon and got a little uh, press pass authorized, you could hop on any helicopter that would take you, or any convoy that would take you, and go anywhere in the country and interview anyone you wanted. And so it was fascinating to me. I was genuinely interested to see how, when I understood what was going on in Hue, how this was playing in the press. And, and I became even more so when I realized, before this I didn't know when I started working on the book, that the editor who hired me at the Philadelphia Inquirer, Gene Roberts, was a New York Times correspondent in Vietnam at the time and was the first American reporter to go into Hue with a company of Marines the day after the city was taken. And he began filing for the New York Times the first reports from the scene. Now, at the same time, his first story ran three days after the city was taken. And at that same moment, General Westmoreland and the White House are telling the American people that there are maybe 500 enemy troops in way. There's sort of like small pockets of enemy resistance here and there, but that nothing major has happened, right? At the same time that these young Marines are being sent out to fight what were in fact 10,000 or more enemy troops. Some of them perched up on the walls of the Citadel firing down at them. Uh, the story on the front page of the New York Times was the first account of what had actually happened. And it was, and it amazes me because I've been a reporter in war zones. I know what it's like to be dumped in the middle of some place you've never been in your life, where all hell is breaking loose, and you're supposed to try to figure out what's going on. And somehow Gene, within the first 24 hours, figured out what was going on in that city and wrote the most accurate ac account of what was really going on. And it just continued throughout the month. The, at the same time, the White House and the military command are downplaying everything that's going on in Hawaii, saying there's nothing significant happening. The press is covering the most intense fighting that most American troops had seen since World War II or, or Korea. So it was just diametrically opposite. And at least in the case of the Battle of Hawaii, the accurate accounts were in the press, not in the official accounts. Yeah, that comes pretty evident from the, from the book. But, uh... I don't want to monopolize all the time, but I do want to ask one more question and then open it up to the audience. To open it up to the audience, and that goes back to my initial point: if you were going to provide some advice to a U.S. Army that is now trying to relook at this idea of fighting combat in urban areas, from what you've learned from from the Battle of Hue, what advice would you give to the U.S. Army about that kind of combat? Well, I don't think they need any advice from me, and they know already, get used to it, because that's where most fighting is going to happen from here on out for the foreseeable future. Most of the world's population now lives in cities. We saw it in Iraq. The most major combat took place in an urban environment. And the urban environment is a, is a uh, terrifying battlefield, because uh, you generally can't see exactly where the enemy is. It's a, often a 360-degree battlefield. It's very hard to tell where people are who are shooting at you. Um, there are plenty of places to hide. The proximity of the enemy neutralizes much of the advantage that Americans usually bring to any fight, which is air power and artillery. Uh, although increasingly our air power and artillery are very, very accurate, much more accurate than they were in Vietnam. Uh, but this is, I think, at least for the foreseeable future, uh, where um, most fighting will take place. And it's for the simple reason that uh, this gives an enemy that doesn't have the resources and firepower of the United States military a more uh, equal playing field. 
I mean, it neutralizes a lot of the advantages that uh, America brings to these fights. So, yeah, and I don't think it's any news to any of you who have been serving. Uh, the, the Marines and the Army train heavily uh, to fight in an urban environment, and that's because that's where most of the big fights are taking place. Yeah, one of the challenges will be if we ever do get engaged in a real megacity, there aren't enough troops in the U.S. Army to meet any of the combat levels they had in Hawaii, for instance, or even in Fallujah. It just it's, well, it's isn't amazing. that always a problem, though? And I mean, if if you have to ramp up, uh, it's a huge logistical challenge. But uh, you know, we've done it in the past. So. Well, thank you very much. Okay, Carl, let's open it up to... All right, ladies and gentlemen, we have plenty of time for questions and answers. So if you will raise your hand if you have a question. And again, please wait for me to come around with the uh, the microphone before you stand up and ask your question. We got to start right out back here in the back. Thanks, Mark. You're welcome. Uh, Mark, thanks for coming out. Uh, just listening to you is amazing. You, you're just like your writing, the way you speak and present. It's It's been a real honor to have you here. Uh, your book is excellent. Uh, I've read all your books, actually. I, I think most of us have or, or, or know of them. So I'm very curious as to what your next book's going to be. And uh, <laughs> you, you obviously write about foreign policy quite a bit and really enjoyed the North Korean article in the Atlantic couple, uh, I guess, in 2017. Yeah. Just wonder where you're heading next. Thank you. Thank you. Um, the, I've written a book which will be published in April, which has nothing to do with the military or foreign policy. It's a terrible story of two little girls who disappeared from a mall in Wheaton, Maryland in 1975. I was a young reporter for the Baltimore News American. It was the first big story that I ever covered. And no trace of these two little girls was ever found. Uh, Forty years later, I read a little article in the Washington Post that Montgomery County, Maryland police have found the man who kidnapped and killed these two little girls. So I went and found those detectives and wrote a book about how they pieced together this crime uh, 40 years after it happened. It's called The Last Stone, and it'll be out in April. Uh, do you have one right here in the middle? Wow, excuse me. What can you point to uh, that differentiates your story of this battle from some of the other uh, things that you, you were not appreciative of, and how much different would this story be if it were told uh, from the Vietnamese point of view? Okay. Well, I think one of the things that would definitely um, distinguish this account from previous ones is that it does attempt to tell the story through the eyes of both Americans and Vietnamese, and I did quite a lot of reporting in Vietnam. Um, I think, too, as I mentioned earlier, you know, my interest in writing about any event is to arrive at my own understanding of what happened. And so, and, and I'm not, even though I've written often about the military, I don't consider myself to be a military writer. Uh, I just try to tell a true story as well as I can. And I bring to that storytelling a certain critical judgment that I think a lot of previous books about this don't bring to it. Um, so there's that. And I think that, that this is also a much uh, deeper look at what happened. If, if uh, previous books, by my estimate, interviewed 10 or 20 people, this is a book where 200 or more people are interviewed. This is a book that I went to Vietnam to research and report. Uh, so there's a, it took me six years of my life to do. So it's much deeper, I think much broader, much richer, and it brings a sort of an independent critical um, perspective. It, it, what you can say about any book that I write is if it were written about, written about by someone else, it would be a different story altogether. Uh, all that any author can do is give you their best understanding of a story. I bring to that understanding who I am. I'm an American. You know, I'm an American of a certain age. I'm a white male. Uh, I have certain values uh, that I bring to everything that I report and write about. It reflects who I am as a person. And I think if you were to take any, even any other American, or any Vietnamese, certainly, who had the same level of 
ability, experience, knowledge, whatever, they would write an, an account that would be equally good or better to anything that I've done, but it would be completely different. Even this latest book about the, you know, trying to find out how they track down this guy who kidnapped these two little girls. If someone else had written it, it would be a completely different story. Yeah, That's why I always tell people who are critical of my books, write your own. <laughs> I'll make a comment on that. Having read the official North Vietnamese history of this battle, that having read Harry Summers' description of American success in Vietnam and read the North Vietnamese history now, this is the first war in history where neither side ever lost a battle. <laughs> well, that's true. And one other thing I'll say is that if you ever, one of the better books about the Battle of Hue is by Eric Hamels. It's called Fire in the Streets. And I've never met Eric Hamels. He's a very, I think, um, scrupulous researcher. He, he is only really interested in telling the American side of the story. But he is this kind of military writer who feels the need every time he introduces a character to give you their name, rank, and serial number. And, and you know, what their rank was, what the number of their unit was, what you know, subordinate unit. And I'm a civilian. You know, I write about people. Uh, to me, the fact that somebody is a, is a colonel or a captain or a sergeant is secondary information. It, it's useful to me only if it plays a role, ultimately, in the telling of a story. So it becomes important, for instance, that Ernie Cheatham is a lieutenant colonel and a battalion commander because he's pissed off because two of his companies have been taken away from him. So you need to understand him in that context. So for me, that's when it becomes important what his rank is or exactly what unit he served in. But I think too many military accounts are written, they're, they're like hard to read. Impossible in some cases to read because you have to plow through all the lists of exactly what unit they were in, exactly what make and model of weapon was being used you know, for this thing and the other. And as a civilian, uh, I don't think that that enhances the storytelling at all. Next question. Where did you get the uh, story about the stick figure with the horns? <laughs> Where did that come from him or his wife? Or it, it came from him. Uh, remind me of Andy. Andy, yes. yeah. uh, boy, Andy and Mimi, right? Yes. Uh, you know, I was just in the beginning, the way I start many of these projects is I call people at random. I get these lists of people who I knew had fought in the Battle of Way, and I'll call them, and I start... And I asked them about their experience, and I get them to tell me about what happened. And Andy told me all about his experience during the battle. But a question that I always ask is, do you have any letters? Do you have any photographs? Do you have anything that you wrote at that time? Because for someone trying to recreate a moment in the past, the things that you were writing and thinking and saying at that moment are of tremendous significance. And as it happens, Andy had kept all these letters that he had written to his uh, wife, Mimi, and you know what, how horny he was, and the little drawing that he would make, and then in the beginning, he'd do a little stick figure with horns on his head, and by the end of the battle, his little stick figures at the bottom, and the horns fill the entire page. <laughs> it's just, and, and you know, my publisher, actually, when the book was, a, as you see, it's a fat book. Publishers hate fat books, because a lot of people won't buy them. And so he said, well, can we, you know, let's cut something. And I'd say, well, what do you think we should cut? Well, maybe we should cut Andy and Mimi. And I said, over my dead body. <laughs> well, you know, it leavens what's otherwise horrible, a horrible story. I mean, it's tragic and sad and violent. And suddenly, because this is life, you got a guy in a foxhole who could be blown away the next second. And he's writing to his girlfriend how horny he is. And, and a, would, you, would you please send me the latest issue of Playboy magazine to me? This is uh, life as we live it. <laughs> and what's great about Andy is Andy was so loved this book that, and he's retired. So he was traveling around the country where, when I was promoting this book, and he would show up, and we would go out to dinner all over America, you know, Chicago, Atlanta, Washington. He's a lovable guy, and he was having a ball. We have one over in the corner. 
I read your book, it was awesome, uh, outstanding. It was a lot of things about the Battle of Way I did not know about, but I was 14 years old, watching on TV every night. The one thing that really impressed me was the accounts you did from both sides, perspectives from both sides. I'm curious though, could you elaborate a little bit more about uh, how the press covered this? I've always understood, and being a young man watching TV and later on, of course, Walter Cronkite plays a major role. He's there, he comes home, says the war cannot be won. Is this really the change, uh, a significant change in how the press covers the Vietnam War compared to what it was prior to February of 1968? And from then on, there is definitely a bent that we are in a terrible war, we're not going anywhere. And that's very obvious through the networks. Do you, can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Sure. You know, I think if you look back, and I did, at the coverage of the war in Vietnam, uh, in the beginning, most reporters who were covering the war, many of them were veterans of World War II and Korea. Cronkite himself had landed at D-Day and marched across Europe with American forces. And traditionally, there, were, there was tremendous respect. Um, and um, I think, to a certain extent, a willingness to uh, be a mouthpiece for the American military command. Uh, Vietnam was different, as I mentioned, in that journalists had free reign. You could go wherever you wanted. Part of the problem in the relationship between journalists and the military in Vietnam was that the high command in Saigon was not truthful about what was going on. Uh, they would inflate casualty figures. They would exaggerate the success of operations in the field. Reporters like Gene Roberts, David Halberstam, young reporters in their 20s, early 30s, they're going out into the field and they're interviewing people like Mike Downs and Ron Christmas. And you know, these are 25-year-old Marine captains who are actually being asked to implement these policies, which are being touted as a huge success in Saigon. And you land, and, and these are guys who don't have the chance to show up and tell General Westmoreland exactly what's going on in their sector. And so they, a reporter shows up and says, what's actually going on in your sector? This is their opportunity to say, well, you know what? Don't quote me on this, but this is really fucked up. You know, <laughs> what they're telling you in Saigon is not the truth. And so gradually what you found is, and I don't think that this was entirely manufactured by journalists. I think it was a legitimate reflection of the experience of the war by those who were actually fighting the war in the rice paddies, in the jungles, in the mountains. So that kind of reporting really angered the authorities in Saigon. It really angered the White House. And you got a growing sort of um, discord between the way the story was being presented by journalists and the way it was being presented officially. Now, I will say that you know, Cronkite, I think, was lied to. I mean, Cronkite had felt a sense of personal responsibility because for years he had been reporting at his anchor desk on CBS Evening News what he was being told about how successful the war was going. Westmoreland had come back to Washington in November of 1967 and given a speech at the National Press Club where he said the war was pretty much over and that we we're going to begin bringing troops home you know, in 1968, the enemy was all but defeated, right? Tet Offensive happens. Walter Cronkite, who's in New York, says, I don't get it. You know, either I'm being lied to or, you know, journalists are making these things up. So he goes to Vietnam. He goes to travel around the country and talk to people who are fighting. He goes to see General Westmoreland, who, in this case, in the case of Hue, assured him that the fighting was over in Hue, that it was, the city was completely under American control. Then he flies to Huey, and he sees the most intense fighting, stuff that he hasn't seen since World War II. He was outraged, and he actually felt, and I read his memoir, and I interviewed people who worked with him, but he felt he had been used as a mouthpiece to, to, to lie to the American people. So he felt it was incumbent on him to say what he really believed, and that's why he did that documentary where he said this war is not being won, it's at best a stalemate, and the only way out of this war is to negotiate 
a solution at that point. As time went by, this is 1968. As you know, this war unwound for another seven years. It became fashionable for journalists to be critical of the military command. The numbers of reporters who were sent to Vietnam grew. Uh, it, uh, sort of uh, a culture took shape, of an anti-war culture. I don't think it was there in the beginning. I think that those reports in the beginning were honest reports. But I do think that by the end of the war, you had many journalists who had become anti-military, who went to Vietnam convinced that it was a, a fruitless endeavor, that uh, Americans and Vietnamese were being killed for no reason whatsoever. And that began, I think, to create the divide that we still experience in our country between the fake news and the, and the official news. All right, any more questions? All right, with that, ladies and gentlemen, if I can please add, oh, we got one more question here. So you've written two books on epic battles and cities now. Can you juxtapose me what you think in the interviews? You talk about how you talk to people. Very interested in the difference, if any, between the Rangers and the Delta guys and what the Marines were doing in the way. Mm. Because mm. Two, different, two different battles, some similarities, some not so similar. But for us, it's about nature of war. Right. Because as the professor alluded to, this is where we're headed. And so I'm kind of curious as to how did, the, how did the Rangers see things when you juxtapose that with how the Marines saw things? Because I, I don't think there's any difference, but I'd be curious because you got to talk to each one. Good yeah, question. no, it's a really good question. Um, I think there are more similarities than differences. I think the experience of war hasn't really changed. Um, but I will say that, um, and I had a smaller sample. I mean, there were only, um, what, maybe, 100, 200 American troops in Mogadishu at the height of that battle. And in a way, there were thousands. Um, but the Rangers and the Delta Force operators who I met were far more professional soldiers. They were um, an elite within the military itself. Even the Rangers who were very young were members of an elite unit. They had worked hard to get to that position. So as you know, they, they had a kind of professionalism and an ethos that was apparent and impressive. Uh, Marines, in a way, uh, very clearly, were inspired by the Corps, uh, by their mission. But they were, many of them, some of them draftees. Uh, they were young. Uh, they were new to the military. Uh, they had received, by comparison, minimal training compared to what the uh, Rangers, certainly what the special operators have been through. Uh, so I would say their attitude covered a broader range, but in general was more civilian uh, than the soldiers that I talked to who fought in Mogadishu. And I think that there's some truth maybe there overall about the American military. I mean, in Vietnam, where there was a draft, uh, you had a force made up of a lot of people who didn't want to be there, uh, who the last thing they wanted was to be in a war or, or fighting, and in many cases, didn't understand uh, exactly what they were fighting for, other than broad generalizations, you know, that they were fighting communism, and it was important for one reason or another. Um, but I think a lot of these guys were not college educated. They were. Um, some of them right off of the farm. And uh, so they had a very honest, earthy, human response to what they went through. I found that the soldiers I interviewed who fought in Mogadishu were more sophisticated. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to invite uh, Colonel uh, Sullivan up here, our director here at the AHEC, to have, make a quick few words. Okay, first of all, I think we had a great uh, evening tonight, and from the questions and reaction, I think everybody agrees with that. So I want to thank the Visitor and Education Services team, Carl, Mary, and then Sam helping us out with some technical stuff, putting this together, and they always do a great job. 
Certainly want to thank the audience for coming out. It would be an extremely uneventful event if there was nobody in the audience. But by God, Dr. Crane would still talk, regardless whether you're here or not. I have no faith about that. Thank you for coming. That's only one of many, so hold on. But also, there's a couple of folks or a couple of groups in the audience that I'd like to pay special recognition to. I think we have a group from Dickinson ROTC. Yes, no, somewhere I see young people, much younger than me, with short haircuts. So. Hey, and if there are other ROTC groups, just hey, that's great to see young, aspiring professionals taking time, coming out here and being part of that. Then there's another group, a very special group here. They're probably going to be very angry at me for recognizing them. But could we have the Vietnam veterans stand up? And if we would recognize those veterans. Um, You know, th those of us that are serving active duty and have done tours in Iraq and Afghanistan get welcomed home wh wherever we're at. You know, whether you fly in through Bangor, Maine, uh, you are welcomed home by groups of veterans. And that's the Vietnam veterans making sure we were recognized and, and truly an underappreciated group in, in our history. Um, now, Dr. Crane, as much as it pains me to you know, give you any recognition. Behind the scenes, it's bad enough, but public is, is very difficult. But I will, I will call a spade a spade. You, you did a great job. Thanks very much. So Mark, I want to thank you, one, for a great presentation, obviously, but I, was, I thought I was coming up with a great way to thank you until the first person raised their hand and talked about a question. And that, that's to thank you as a professional of 29 years. Your writings, Black Hawk Down, Three Battles or Whatnot, now way added to that, really are things that we're learning, real-time less, real lessons for, relevant. And you know, the gentleman said, he's read your books. Trust me, in, in the Army, in the active force, we look at those types of books uh, from the youngest soldier on up, and, and it's very relevant. So I want to thank you for that. And you're welcome back here anytime at AHEC. Thanks very much. Okay, and that's for you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to our lecture. The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania, USA, is the U.S. Army's archival collection. To learn more about the Army's history or to plan a visit to our center, please visit us online at www.usahec.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube to learn more about our upcoming events.